From the KGOU studios, I'm Suzette Grillat, the Dean of the University of Oklahoma's College of International Studies, and welcome to Worldviews. In Thailand, the ruling military junta is calling for an election, but that doesn't necessarily mean the military will loosen its grip on power. I think the new electoral system favors the military so much behind the scenes that it works in the military's favor to return to democracy. I'll talk to Paul Chambers about Thailand's evolving politics. But first, Rebecca Cruz and I will discuss the Winter Olympics coming to a close with relatively little controversy this year and the removal of the leader of UNICEF due to inappropriate messages shared with staff. There were some allegations waged against him in 2011 and 2015, and he's now saying that he's stepping down to protect the organizations, not necessarily claiming that he's responsible. That's all coming up after news from NPR. This is Worldviews. I'm Suzette Grillat. Rebecca Cruz, we haven't mentioned the Winter Olympics yet, I don't believe. It's been going on. I think it's about to to finish up, Winter Olympics in South Korea, coming to a nice close. But let's talk about Canada leading up to the Olympics, had this really interesting campaign called Own the Podium. And it was a bit controversial because it was kind of like anti-Olympic spirit in some ways, and that they wanted to own the podium and earn more medals. And is that really what it's all about? They were kind of called out on this. Well, I suppose it's how you look at it. But uh, in 2005, they created this Own the Podium movement, if you will. It's a, technically a nonprofit, but the idea was leading into the Vancouver Games, which they, of course, were hosting. They wanted to have a really good showing, and they wanted to continue that momentum going forward. And it's been very, very successful. Uh, but what this is is an organization that collects money that then distributes the money to different athletes and different um, athletic programs where they've gone through some sort of statistical evaluation and figured these people are going to meddle or are likely to meddle, and so they get more resources. So yes, is this part of the Olympic spirit? Hard to say. It's, it's certainly not amateurism, but it is maybe part of the Olympic spirit in the sense that countries want to show well. They want to be able to stand up on that podium and do well. There are some issues about where the money is coming from. This is taxpayer dollars in large part, as well as some some other donors. But uh, some interesting questions, but uh, for now, it's, it's, uh, it's working, and they're owning the podium, at least a few of them. Well, of course, the Me Too issue has also hit the Olympics with uh, Sean White, famous snowboarder who won his third Olympic gold medal during the South Korean Olympics, but has been accused in the past of some pretty inappropriate behavior, harassment of of some of his staff, uh, an assistant in particular, a lawsuit that's out there against him. And of course, people wanted to kind of make his third gold medal about this issue, uh, and he's been kind of refusing to do that. But nonetheless, this movement continues and, and has actually touched the Olympics in some way. Absolutely. It's somewhat shocking in the fact that it hasn't actually gained more attention. There's the, the lawsuit you mentioned uh, was filed over a year and a half ago. A band member and assistant, as you said, claimed that he sent some inappropriate texts and did some other, other things. And he's admitted to the texts. They have come to some conclusion on the lawsuit. But it is quite startling that this is only coming out now. But yeah, there was a conference and one person asked and he said, I'm not talking about this. And uh, that has raised a lot of eyebrows as well. But these are issues that are affecting all aspects all careers, even the Olympics, and even someone considered a a bit of a national hero in Sean White. 
Well, and it doesn't stop there, of course. This uh, this movement has now uh, moved into international organizations. We saw this past week that the head of, of UNICEF, Justin Forsyth, has step, stepped down largely because of accusations regarding inappropriate messages that he has shared with his staff. Um, he... In, in fact, may have had a history of this when he was working with Save the Children. So it, you, you see some case here of people moving from one position to another even uh, when they're undergoing these issues. But now we see this extending even to international organizations like the UN. Yes, he stepped down. As you said, mo- much of this took part uh, when he was part of uh, Save the Children. There were some allegations waged against him in 2011 and 2015. And he's now saying that he's stepping down to protect the organizations, not necessarily claiming that he's responsible uh, for these actions, but it's quite interesting just how far this has gone. Another interesting case this month, someone else associated with Save the Children, the uh, widower of Joe Cox, uh, former MP that was uh, murdered a couple of years ago, he also, while at Save the Children, was accused of inappropriate behavior. He, too, has stepped down from his new positions in other organizations, so it's it's very, very widespread. Head of the Ford Motor Company in this country actually also was uh, removed this week for that. So this issue is a global one. Absolutely. It's touching the Olympics and uh, uh, major uh, international organizations and corporations. But uh, we'll continue to see what happens with that. Thank you, Rebecca, as always, for being here today. Thank you. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this discussion or answer any questions you might have. Leave your comments in the Worldview section of KGOU.org or like us, follow us, and interact with us on Twitter. We're at Worldviews KGOU, and I'm at Suzette Quirlot. Next, we'll talk with Paul Chambers about why Thailand's military junta wants to schedule elections. Suzette Gorlott, and this is Worldviews. This is Worldviews. I'm Suzette Gorlott, the Dean of the College of International Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Our next guest is Paul Chambers. He's a University of Oklahoma graduate and currently the Director of Research at the Institute of Southeast Asian Affairs. He has lived for many years in Thailand, and he has researched the relationship between the country's military and civilian leaders. Paul Chambers, welcome to Worldviews. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's great to have you here, a member of our community, longtime member of our community, and a former graduate of OU, but now living and working in Thailand, have been for many years. Uh, but tell us how you got there, because um, you, you served as uh, a member of the Peace Corps, and I always love hearing mm-hmm. about those stories, kind of how you ended up there and in Thailand and what your experience was like. Well, you know, I applied for Peace Corps many years ago, and I didn't think I'd even get accepted, but lo and behold, suddenly I realized they wanted me to come to Thailand. And at that point, I was already living in Latin America, but I said, yeah, let's go. I'll go to Thailand. And I did. 1993, arrived in Thailand as a pretty young kid. And uh, yeah, it was a good experience. I was very utopian. I told them, just send me where I'm needed the most. And they sent me to the most, I guess, the most godforsaken part of the country, uh, it was nice. It was a great experience for two years, living in you know in Thailand, rural Thailand with Peace Corps. It was in the northeast part of Thailand. Northeast, that you were in. yes, a town called Suwanapum, 
very, I would say, very underdeveloped, very, very rural. And, you know, the people are so, so friendly, so kind. And I really loved Peace Corps. I would recommend Peace Corps for anybody. I really had a great experience. And if anyone would want to talk to me about it, I would love to talk about it. What kind of work did you do during the Peace Corps in that in that uh, part of Thailand? Well, I taught English, but I also administered some development uh, programs because actually Peace Corps has funds for development projects. And, you know, it was it was a very good for the community to have Peace Corps there. We built a water well. We did a, a project to expand some of the school infrastructure. Uh, and we built a gymnasium as well through Peace Corps funding. So it was very good for the community. It was very good for me helped me grow up, and it made me really love Thailand. Well, obviously, because you stayed on, right? I mean, <laughs> right. you went on to become a scholar, uh, uh, focusing on the area and staying there, teaching and working, which is kind of an, I mean, I guess, I don't know, maybe you tell me, from, from moving from Peace Corps, is that really unusual that you end up staying in a, in a location and developing a lifelong career someplace where you've served in the Peace Corps? Many people that were in Peace Corps stay, and in fact, the person who wrote the Lonely Planet Guide for Thailand, Joe Cummings, he was a former Peace Corps volunteer. There's been so many others. Uh, Thailand has a way of growing on you and making you want to stay. And even those who go home, several people in my group, they came back again or keep some sort of connection with Thailand. And I, and I certainly did because I've been there off and on since 1993. I mean, that's a, a long time. You've seen a lot happen in yes. Thailand then. So let's talk a little bit about some of the transition issues. They had a king for 70 years yes. uh, who uh, passed away. They have an, a new king, and we could talk about that as well. But there's been some instability that has emerged in the wake of that, yes. some political protests and, uh-huh. and things that have gotten violent. And so right. tell us about what you've seen happen there. Well, in a nutshell, in 2001, a man named Toxin Chinawat was elected prime minister He was a populist. He brought a lot of welfare programs for poor rural people. And in a way, he awakened a lot of these people to become politically active. And, you know, they saw their the amount of money they could make grow through his programs. And as a result, you know, they became his loyal constituents. Now, Toxin was also mm, a very strong prime minister. And to many people in the in the urban more aristocratic structure, um, he seemed a threat. And so you saw growing friction between urban, middle, and upper classes and the larger number of very poor rural people who supported him. This is really the clash that developed. And eventually, uh, some of the urban people saw Toxin as threatening the king. 2006, you have a military coup against Toxin. But, you know, even though the military and the aristocrats tried to rewrite the Constitution to make it more difficult for political parties, you know, large parties to come back to power, a pro-toxin party did come back. And so we eventually see another military coup in 2014. And that's what Thailand is living right now under this military coup. Um, And it has been very authoritarian, uh, authoritarian military rule. Um, And, you know, you've seen growing human rights violations, but you've also seen the economy really plummet. And so increasingly we're seeing a fractious support among urban people for this military government. 
and, of course, very much opposition from rural people for that government. So can you sort this out for us a little Mm. bit in terms of, so there was this military coup that was acting on behalf of who exactly? Oh, good question. And so, so like, who who is it that, you know, the because it sounds like the prime minister had been elected. There's some sort of, right. I, I assume, some sort of constitutional monarchy that Thailand right. operates under. So who is, is the military acting on behalf of? And then kind of how does that, you know, relate to all of the other problems that they have economically, socially, and otherwise? Okay. So both the 2006 coup and the 2014 coup were supported by the monarchy, in fact, endorsed directly by the monarchy. And when that happens, military rule is assured, okay, because the king is sacrosanct in Thailand, almost godly, okay, you would, you would say, uh, especially the last king. He was there for 70 years, okay. So, of course, with aristocratic and monarchical support and support by the urban middle and upper classes, the junta since 2014 has been able to survive. And right, you know, right now it continues to receive support from these groups. Okay. But then again, these groups do not have the majority of the electoral vote. And so if it is one person, one vote in Thailand – uh, toxins, populist parties, have always won since 2001, since toxin was first elected. And for that matter, you know, these aristocratic groups realize that they're not going to win an election, uh, you know, if it's fair. And so what they're doing now in this new 20th constitution of Thailand, this is tox- Thailand's 20th, I think it's the world record, Um, just enacted last year, is there's a new electoral system, a new formula under elections, which will ensure that no political party can gain uh, over 50 percent. And as a result, you'll have all these coalition governments. And it's always easy for, you know, someone to cajole one of these parties out of the ruling coalition and then bring another coalition to power. So basically very weak uh, elected rule, and that means that the monarch and military continue to dominate the country. This is Thailand pre-2001, too. This is what it was like back then. Um, there was this trajectory moving Thailand towards party rule, strong party rule after 2001, but the new constitution is going to end that. In fact, we see starting today, you see this growth of uh, a military party, a, polit- a potential military party. Although the junta leaders deny it, there is this growing realization that the new party law just enacted a few days ago is going to permit a, a military uh, nominee party to compete in the elections. So the response from the public then has been, I mean, there has have been you know, people in the streets, there's been a lot of, uh, um, you know, reaction to this. I mean, what, what about the role of civil society here? I mean, are they just pretty much silenced on, you know, every front here? That's a good question, Suzette. Um, well, you see, one of the laws under the junta is this law that, you know, you can only have four to five people demonstrating, okay? More than that, they're all, their demonstrations are broken up. So if you try to have people out there in the streets, it's going to be nipped in the bud. 
And that's what we've seen is the violent reaction of the police exactly. shutting down these large protests. Exactly. Exactly. Now, eventually, there will be a return to some form of democracy. Uh, this prime minister junta leader, Prayut Chanocha, has promised elections for next year. Of course, he's made that promise for the last five years, five times. <laughs> but this time, he's probably going to have to come through with it. So we're going to see late 2018 or 2019 elections. When you do have the new elections, uh, there's not going to be this rule of four to five people, you know, uh, that's the maximum demonstrating. So then there will be a possibility of many, many demonstrators on the street and the new system might not be able to survive. Well, why are you optimistic that they're going to eventually return to democracy, that he's going to have to have elections, uh, given all the changes and the fact that he's promised them before and hasn't done it? Why, why would you say that? Well, I think because I think the new electoral system favors the military so much behind the scenes that it works in the military's favor to return to democracy. So let me just show you, share some details with you. Under the new system... It will be, besides the electoral formula I mentioned, it will be possible for the current junta leader to act as the prime minister, an unelected prime minister coming through a electoral system, if, they can, if he can be nominated as the party leader. And secondly, the new junta is establishing a 20-year strategy. So every elected government has to follow that strategy. Sitting above this 20-year strategy is a committee. And on that committee is the current junta leadership. Now, four times a year, the elected governments will be audited to make sure they're following that strategy. And if they are not following it, they can be thrown out of office. So this is sort of a military junta behind the scenes. There's certainly an elected government. But what a lot of Thai professors have said is Thailand is following the Myanmar model, where you have a very strong military sort of behind a charade democracy. And that way, you know, the military in Thailand, as well as the monarchy, can have the support of the West for supposedly supporting a liberal democratic system. Well, you mentioned the economic problems that have resulted presumably from all of this instability. I mean, Thailand is a is a hub of tourism, right? I mean, yes. people love to visit Thailand, the islands, the coast, the, you know, go for the food, the beauty. I mean, it's just an, I haven't been myself, but I've seen uh, many photos and I've spoken to many people who've been and, and love it. But I assume that that's probably taking a pretty big hit given all of this instability. Oh, well, that's another good question. Um, the, pro the issue is, yes, the economy is crevicing. The economy is plummeting. Uh, many investors have left the country because of the instability. However, Thailand remains, Thailand's economy remains rather robust based almost, almost totally on tourism. Which tourism? Chinese tourism. Chinese tourism has grown upwards of 500% in the last five years. It's amazing. Um, not as much Western tourism as before, but because of all this Chinese tourism, you know, Thailand's economy is still buoyant um, based upon this, and it will probably continue to be buoyant as long as tourism can be guaranteed. I, I'm really glad you brought this up. Um, it's very interesting to hear that it's Chinese tourism. It doesn't surprise me at all because I was going to ask about the regional issues here. I mean, it is Asia. It's Southeast Asia, but still, I mean, you know, it's, it's near China. So I was just curious about the impact that China might 
be having on on Thailand in many ways, not just in terms of tourism, but but just um, other types of economic uh, and political uh, engagement. Well, that's certainly a big issue for Thailand. After the 2014 coup, the Obama administration sort of distanced itself from military Thailand. And Thailand began to tilt toward China. And so there have been many, many investments and trade deals done with China. Uh, China economically is going to provide mega projects to Thailand. For example, a high-speed train, which will come directly from Yunnan province in central China all the way to Thailand and eventually to Singapore. Uh, This is part of the One Belt, One Road China project, upwards of $8 trillion of China project, and Thailand is part of that. Uh, Thailand is also going to be allowing this eastern economic corridor to exist, part of the eastern Thailand, where Chinese can purchase 99-year leases on Thailand. Uh, More than that even, there is going to be uh, three submarines, Chinese submarines purchased by Thailand, and Chinese military advisors will be stationed for at least five years in Thailand helping to train, so-called train, the Thais. But what it amounts to is a sort of informal Chinese military base. And another thing I'll add to that, and this is something I've talked to the U.S. Embassy about, is that there is going to be a, an arms production facility in this area for Chinese weapons to be built and to be given to the Thais, but they can also be given to Chinese soldiers in the region. So this... Uh, area of Thailand, which is in the east but also on the ocean, allows for a naval facility for the Chinese to exist, and very important geopolitically. Absolutely very important geopolitically. Thank you so much, Paul, for pointing that out and for telling us about this very interesting country that we often don't talk about here on Worldviews. Thank you for being here today. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to my conversation with Paul Chambers. He's a University of Oklahoma graduate and the director of research at the Institute of Southeast Asian Affairs. Worldviews is produced in partnership between KGOU and the College of International Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Katie Holland prepares our research, Jacob McClellan edited this interview, and Sam Dupre produced the show. For Rebecca Cruz, I'm Suzette Rolotte.